You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. All right, everyone. Today, we've got the CEO of Refine Labs, Chris Walker. And we typically don't really have agency people on the podcast, but sometimes when you have really smart people, I mean, it just makes a lot of sense, right? So Chris has got a lot of insights. I've listened to him a couple of times on other podcasts. And I just think he's super smart, very methodical, comes from a engineering background, but uh, Refine Labs, I mean, I'll kind of speak the one sentence and then I'll kind of let you let you talk about it, Chris. But basically they help B2B companies create demand for how buyers buy today, which I think is important through social communities and word of mouth. Chris, how's it going? Eric, things are going awesome. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here, man. So let's talk a little bit about kind of what your story is as it relates to Refine Labs and what you're up to today. Yeah, let's do it. So as you noted, and I think like a way a lot of the market sees us as they see us as an agency, although what's been developing in our business over the past two years is actually how do you use a service business to like an agency to collect major customer insights, what technology your customers using, what are the problems they're struggling with, how do they measure marketing, what are the team size look like, how do they outsource or insource, how does that all work? So we're getting a bunch of insights. And then how do we collect the biggest problems in the market and then innovate products on them, right? So we're using this more as a, a think tank to develop innovation. So we have our first product coming out. It's in a beta right now, and we believe it'll launch in July called The Vault, which takes all of our, what we call intellectual capital, which is how do you go from an insight, like an insight, for example, in a B2B company is that B2B attribution is broken. It's an obvious insight. A lot of people would resonate with that being true. How do you convert that into a non-obvious insight? The reason that attribution is broken is because they only focus on software-based attribution that's biased toward channels like Google or other capture demand channels. So when they try and do a podcast or LinkedIn or other things like my company does, they don't see it succeed because their measurement system isn't set it up for it to work. That's the non-obvious insight. And then how do you convert that into intellectual capital? What do you do about that? Which what we've done is come up with multiple other alternatives for attribution. We've now productized that, rolled that out into a Salesforce managed package and are offering that to the market as a product. And so that's sort of some of the things that we think about and how we approach things is looking at using the service business to create actual products, which might be some of the reason why you have me on this show. Because in the future, I actually see agencies being our customer. So... It's an interesting evolution in how we think about our company and where we're going. Got it. Yeah. I want to come back to that one a little bit, but there are a handful of things that you talk about on other podcasts, such as dark social and how, you know, the way we measure attribution, even in 2022 is is broken, right? So maybe let's just start well, with the definition of dark social, and then we'll, we'll jump to, to attribution. What does dark social mean? Dark social is through the maturity and scale of the internet. There's been tons of word of mouth channels that have been created, like social networks, communities, things like that that scale content sharing, advocacy, other forms of word of mouth that never get tracked by attribution software and never create intent data because of the privacy policies on the platforms that were restricted from happening. I'll just walk through the, the six main categories that I see. So social networks like LinkedIn or things like that, content platforms that I see differently, which would be YouTube or a podcast, event like third-party events and meetups, like I'm gonna meet with my VC or PE firm, direct word of mouth, text messages, Zooms, things like that internal company communications like Slack and email. Those are the categories of things that fall into all of those things are where B2B buyers look for information, communicate with peers, collect and share content, and all of it because of how the privacy policies are structured in these 
places that are different than a lot of the web 1.0, like core websites, don't allow that data to be shared because of the privacy policies. So it's not going to get tracked in your attribution system. It doesn't get measured and attributed as a viable touch point and influence revenue and pushes marketers to continue to think about very transactional behaviors that are easy to measure. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. And so let's say, you know, I'm a B2B client that comes to you and I'm like, well, no, Chris, you know, we need to measure through traditional analytics, last click attribution. And then obviously you have your way of thinking, which I agree with. How do you even change someone's mind there? Or do you just say like, no, like our way is our way, like go away. Yeah. It's interesting because like the companies that come to us are not thinking about like last touch attribution, which they think about as like old and outdated. They're now in this like multi-touch attribution world. And they think what they're doing is very cutting edge and unique. What they fail to realize is that all the things that I mentioned don't get properly measured by that. Social networks, content platforms, word of mouth, things that really matter. So they're over here thinking that they have a very robust, innovative system that just happens to miss very important touch points. And so we show them our data. We show them examples of what happens when we install this with customers. And then they can decide. But like, if you want to create demand, which I hope we spend some time talking about the difference between creating demand and capturing demand. If you as a business want to go out and create demand, you simply need a different way to measure things than software-based attribution. So if you're not open to changing that, then we're not a good partner for you. And by the way, I mean, like, you know, I do believe we're in a recession right now. And I think you probably believe something similar. So, I mean, in a recessionary market or in a bear market, let's talk about that. Why is it better, right? To, to create demand versus capture demand. Let's start with the definitions first. So what does creating demand even mean? Yeah, so let's look at the difference between creating demand and capturing demand. Capturing demand, somebody already is aware of the problem and they're looking for either a solution or a solution like you. So example, somebody goes to a review sites and looks at the category of financial analysis software or goes to Google and searches product analytics tools or competitors to this or something like that. All places where, what are all the things that happened before someone actually went and did that, right? So capturing demand when people are already looking for you and then they're you have to win against the people that are competing for that existing demand. On the other side, we have creating demand, which is all the things about what are all the steps that's, that someone takes to realize that they need product analytics software. They probably hear things word of mouth. They probably see problems in their business. They probably do some level of searching. They see what people are doing in communities. They're listening to people's podcasts and they hear a name of a company get shouted out. And then they go to that website and blah, blah, blah. All of these things that help people understand what is the business problem? What is the actual solution? And positioning your business as the only choice because of how you set up either your category or things like that. So going out and creating demand for something the easy example for people to look at is, I mean, you can look at anything, but at some point people didn't realize that they needed toothpaste or a car, right? And some company had to go and educate the market on why a car was better than a horse or why toothpaste was better than doing nothing. And being the company that teaches everyone that this is something new, here's the problem that you didn't know about. Here's the solution that you didn't know about. Even if there are multiple solutions available, they're going to consider your business first because you brought them along on that journey. So that's be creating demand. And then when we get into the sort of like the economic slowdown, I have two different thoughts on this. The first thing is just what do people do during the economic slowdown? We'll look back. This is hindsight, but I said the exact same thing at the beginning of April, which is when it hit a lot of the private markets is that the first thing that happens is companies just cut budgets, right? So they're trying to figure out where am I going? Like they're just like 
pause, freeze. We're going to freeze hiring. We need to cut expenses. We need to extend runway. And they basically do nothing, right? So it's basically like, we're just going to hold. And then after some period of time, which is typically 45 to 90 days, companies realize the show must go on. We're not just going to sit here and hoard our cash and wait for this to get better. We actually need to go and do stuff, which usually means we need to adjust our strategy, be smarter, stop doing things that weren't working, find new things that do work in a new climate and environment. So that's what companies do broadly. And then what you arrive at is if you follow the track that what you actually end up at in 90 days is we need to go out and create demand. Here's the reason. When you're in a category, let's just say you know business budgeting software, there's 10 competitors in that category. When an economic slowdown happens, the natural demand for the entire category declines. So all the demand is declining in the category. And then what do all the companies do? They invest money to fight over a declining amount of demand. So then you got 10 competitors that are spending more for overall less opportunities or less things. Customer acquisition cost goes up. Companies continue to fight over demand. And you end up in this cycle of like declining demand until it returns. It becomes very inefficient. Customer acquisition cost goes up. And so instead of doing that with the 10 other competitors, right? The non-obvious insight is to take a step back, say, how is our product unique or different? And how does it relate to the situation right now? And how do we create demand so that companies realize exactly why they need to do this right now? When demand is declining, you need to be in control of how many new buyers are entering buying cycles, which is a demand creation strategy. That actually transitions well into what I wanted to ask. And I, I think, you know, you have an interesting way of looking at this. And my sense by looking at your stuff is that you're, there's a very methodical process here, right? Let's just call this your, your marketing stack. So what's your approach to how you're creating content in general right now? What are you hitting? The number one step, and I think one of the most overlooked steps is marketing customer insights, right? So I spend a ton of time at the beginning before I ever started my podcast, interviewing CMOs, talking to people, engaging in communities, figuring out what are the things people are struggling with, what are a lot of things that people know are busted, but are not in a position to talk about, right? So when you go out and you hear 50 CMOs all say, we're struggling with this and we're trying to solve it through this, but it's not working. You start to... I have a different view of the market than an individual person because I have such a large sample size. So I get all these insights. And then I, from there, figure out what am I trying to communicate? What are like my unique points of view? Some of the unique points of view, how companies think about marketing generally, B2B companies is outdated and not helping their team do things that matter. How they measure marketing is outdated and flawed and help it prevents their marketers from doing things that are innovative. Those are the types of point of views that I put forward. And then how do I set up the environment to actually create content to communicate that point of view? So the setting up the environment could be going on podcasts like this. We set up a lot of live events, both in person. So live events recorded like that. Also studio level, like virtual events that create top level, long form content, long form video content. Then that video content gets broken down. We break it down into several different channels. We started with LinkedIn initially. So LinkedIn was like the primary channel. And then we added the podcast shortly thereafter and then added YouTube. And now we're pretty solidly moving on TikTok as well. So I'm happy to talk through more of like the mechanics. It's actually quite well published about how we how we do this. But the core is that it really needs to work in one channel before you go out and do seven. You know what I mean? So like we we I had almost a hundred thousand followers on LinkedIn before we even thought about another channel. 
so that when I move into TikTok, I know that the people that want like resonate with the content are on the platform. So I get the comments and I already know that the content resonates with them because it works on LinkedIn. So I'm not guessing anymore on TikTok. All I'm figuring out is how do I need to reformat this and convert it into fitting in a TikTok environment? So I do want to talk about the mechanics too. And so, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but your podcast, it seems like it goes, maybe you hit your list first and then tell them to get on a webinar, right? And it's a webinar and then you, that webinar is a podcast and then you kind of chop it up for these other platforms. Is that correct? More or less, we use live events that are recurring. So it's not like people get an invite and then show up like every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Like we're doing a live event every other Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern. We're doing a lot of events. So they're recurring things that people have on their calendar and they can show up if they want, which basically just force me to show up and create 90 minutes of content, right? Without me thinking, oh, we don't have a guest or we'll just hold off this week because I don't have a topic. It forces action. Got it. So when you say live events, this is like a virtual live event, correct? Virtual live events. And we pre-pandemic, we were doing physical live events that we were using high def recording to actually create the content. And then given the pandemic, we pivoted to virtual. Got it. Yeah. What else are you happy to share around the mechanics around this? Because there's a lot of intricacies and I, I don't want to go down like there's so many rabbit holes to go down. So yeah. whatever mechanics you want to talk about. So for most B2B companies, I think this like, like the simplified stack is a once a week live event that gets converted into a podcast that gets published once a week to you know three to seven LinkedIn videos that get created. And that's like your the starter kit, right? And if you can figure out how to get people to come to your live event and like it so much that they come back the next week. That means that people are going to like the podcast once they become aware of it, right? If you have people that are live, like we have people on our live events that have come to 150 of our live episodes. Wow. Right? So people that are repeat people because we continue to innovate, we continue to think about new topics and things like that. So it's valuable to them and it's free that we know that the stuff on the podcast will then work if we can make people aware of it. And then if that works, then we'll, it'll work on LinkedIn. So the first part is the insights, then figuring out how is the content going to resonate and who is the actual audience for it. And then it's thinking about distribution. So after the, like once the content works, then it's figuring out how do we get more people aware of the podcast? How do we get more people to our events? How do we get more followers on LinkedIn or how often should we post? And a lot of those things are more like, I'm happy to talk through what I've learned, but it's to me, not that it's not that innovative. Like each person should be able to, as part of your process, move into a new channel, post an experiment and figure out what actually works for me. Right. I could tell you what works for Chris Walker, but it may be different for you. So those are some of the things that we think about from a, a simplified way to think about content. Yeah. I mean, it's like investing at the end of the day too. It's, it's consistency, right? I think you've been very consistent and, and just having that forcing function in there. And so I guess it sounds like you're spending what, 60 to 90 minutes at least each week creating that pillar piece of content, correct? When you think about that one piece of content, yeah, 60 to 90 minutes, but I do three to five of them a week. So there's live events, there's podcasts, like what we're doing right now and other forms of long form video content. So I do three to five of those a week, which would be, I don't know, let's just pretend five hours for sake of round numbers. And then I'm spending about 30 minutes actually working on the 30 to 60 minutes per day on the distribution. Mm -hmm. So writing the copy, actually posting it, engaging with comments, collecting insights is a whole other piece. So I estimate that I spend probably somewhere between 8 and 15 hours a week on 
what I call like evangelizing our category and our business. I love that. And that's what I want to talk about too, with consistency. Cause when you look at Chris's LinkedIn and I, I just go click on his posts, he's actually writing the copy himself. I, I can tell that he's not outsourcing it. That, that seems like it's correct. Yes. It would be impossible to outsource the thoughts that I write on LinkedIn. Nobody yep. could do that. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So you can tell it's in his voice. And then there's like a little snippet as well that goes up there. And then each post gets a lot of engagement, right? It looks like it's a couple hundred likes per. So A, like you're doing it yourself, right? Which I think is great. And then also my, my other question would be, how are you going about distributing or promoting this stuff? I would say that we actually, this is much more of a pull strategy than a push strategy. So aside from the actual distribution, like what's happening now is truly dark social. What we talked about at the beginning, right? There's more than 50,000 marketers that listen to our podcast. There's thousands of marketers that have come to our events. There's hundreds of thousands of people every day that see my LinkedIn content. And so through the distribution of these different systems, people become aware of us. And then you also you get the secondary distribution of a CMO that takes the content and then shares it in a Slack channel. And then 20 other people become aware of me. There's a word of mouth. There becomes people doing a live event where they say they quote me or they pull a piece of my content. There's no tracking along that. So once you sort of get the engine rolling now, it fe- as long as you continue to deliver, it feeds itself because enough people are aware of it and like it. Love it. And when you say 50K, that's subscribers or is that monthly listeners? I don't know the metrics that well, but that is subscribers. Got it. I don't even know what our monthly listens are. Got it. Cool. And so you mentioned learning. So I'm keen to know like what are maybe your top three learnings from doing this stuff for a while? This one feels obvious, but I it must be stated that like consistency matters, right? A lot of people look at me and are like, he just came out of nowhere. And it's like, no, I've actually been doing this almost every day for three years, right? So like consistency matters. And through consistency, what happens is that you refine and are better at explaining your points of view. People ask you questions, people react negatively, people don't understand things. Through the consistency, you actually get a much better explanation and product, which I think is why people feel like I can explain things that they've thought in their head, but have never been able to explain is because of the consistency and how I how I work through it. So consistency is a big one. This won't work for everyone. But for me personally, filming content live has really worked for me. I transitioned to this in August of 2019. So moving from... Let me try and think about what I want to talk about. And then I'll either write about it or I'll like script or make a video specifically about this topic. So going from that to just having it integrated into my workflow and then pulling clips out of it has really worked for me in terms of efficiency. So if you're like... A lot of executives try and do this stuff and can never get it off the ground because they're too busy. Like, this is a great way to be able to get this off the ground in a way that fits into your existing workflow. And the last one that I'll say, and I'm trying to like pull things that are non obvious here, is that you don't need to be doing all the things at once. And so I think that when people start, they try and spread out the bets and they're like, okay, if I do seven of these things, then like maybe one of them will work. And what happens is they spread out budget, they spread out resources, they spread out mindshare and none of them work. And so I'm highly recommending that when you do this, you really focus on what is the best opportunity for me right now, and then figure out how to make it really work. Because most marketers, when they're in a channel, they think that they have it maxed out and they're barely scratching the surface. Like even for me on LinkedIn, right? Like I'm not even scratching the surface yet. We don't do LinkedIn lives. I recently just turned on creator mode, which by the way, I don't see a huge benefit in so far. The analytics are a little bit better. I'm posting like 
three or four times a week, but I really like based on my testing an optimal amount would be 14 times a week, twice a day. And so there's a lot of things where like, there's so much more room left on LinkedIn that I could be capitalizing on. So it's another thing for, for marketers to know that like, you don't always need to another channel. It's sometimes just micro innovation or different things inside of a channel that's already working for you. Cool. I love all that. And thank you for that. I think, you know, on this pod, we often will bring new perspectives from people such as yourself or like, and people will talk about new channels, new tactics and all that. And people always feel like they need to jump on the next thing. And that's like, you know, people talk about focus, right? It doesn't need to be the next shiny object all the time. People don't appreciate what's in front of them. The grass is always greener where you water it. So if your content's not working on Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, a podcast and live events, then it's not going to work on TikTok. Yep. <laughs> hundred percent. I do want to talk about the the business itself in a second, but my last question around the content stuff would be, people are probably wondering, okay, well, who's on Chris's content team? Like, how is that team structured? Our overall team has evolved. We have a total, I think of a 11 person marketing team. And then there's four to six people that work specifically on my content. That is one strategist and about four video editors. We're very heavy on video content. And the way that it works is that the like we record this episode, the episode then will get uploaded into a file sharing drive. Someone will go in and will cut it. So like, what are the right clips? So somebody that understands the content, understands my perspective, is like, oh, what he said there, it's going to be a good thing. Actually cut it and clip it. And then the rest of the team will then take those clips and figure out, okay, now how am I going to take this two and a half minute clip and make it work on LinkedIn or make it work on TikTok? And so we have people, we used to break people up by channel and we're still sort of figuring out is the optimal thing for the one person to just make all the TikToks or is the optimal thing for like one person to use one piece of content and spread it out across all of the different channels. So we're still figuring that piece out. But the editing happens and then I show up and I go into a Google Drive or a Box Drive or whatever we use and see all the options for LinkedIn, all the options in a different folder for TikTok. And I can go out, look at them say, okay, I want to post this one. And then I take it, write the copy, which for LinkedIn, like I write... The copy that I write is like blog, like 3000 character type of stuff. So it, it takes time and it's super necessary. I've tested where I sort of like mail in the copy versus when I spend the time and post do dramatically better when the post copy is there because not everyone watches the video for the context. And so I'll post it on like a TikTok or an Instagram reel. So it's a little bit more streamlined because the on TikTok, the constraints on the copy are very low. So it's more on the video side. And then I engage, collect insights and decide what we're going to talk about next. That's amazing, right? It just shows like, you know, when I think about Gary V's brand team, I, I think it's what over 30 people now. And basically it's the same type of setup where it's like, you have a lot of editors, you have people that will pick out the cool stuff and then people will just jump in on it. But it's a lot of work. The reason I asked this question too, is for people to understand that it's not just one person doing this. Like you have to invest into your own money into it. You have to invest your time into it. So props to you. So, you know, let's talk about the agency for a little bit, because pre-show we're talking about how, like I used to poo-poo on the agency business and then you realize the agency business is a great business and it's something that you can just kind of keep it around. And so what are your thoughts with agency as a business? What's your long-term play here? So I went into a little bit of this at the beginning, but from the beginning, right? When I was 25, I like the thing that I said to myself is I'm going to start a product company by the time I'm 35, right? I'm currently 32 years old. And when I was 29, and I had the opportunity to be like, okay, so what do I want to do? I can like think about like some random tech idea and try and raise 5 million bucks and do this whole VC game where you basically like in a lot of cases become an employee for somebody else, right? You're the CEO, but you're somebody else's employee. Or 
Like, am I going to try and do this a different way? Right. I got burned by the VC game as an employee multiple times. I didn't want to do that as a leader. So like, what if we built a real business that makes profit, that helps customers solve real challenges that allow us to get into the details of what they're working on and then be able to use those insights to productize offerings. So we have one product that's about to launch. We have another product that I expect will launch before the end of the summer that changes us from a agency to an experimentation lab. The agency model becomes a experimentation lab that helps companies innovate. We have a software product that collects all the data, all the insights, runs data science and figures out what are the patterns and then pushes that data so that people are analyzing and figuring out, so what are we going to do with this? So if you can think about it in a real life example, like two of the things that are happening, if we have this data pulled in from a hundred of our customers, And then we would be able to look and stack up the benchmarks for like which customers are performing best against pipeline targets versus worst sliced by ARR or industry or things like that. It creates a benchmarking product that's never been seen in the world before. A second option, this is way more futuristic, but in the future, what I'm thinking is like, if you think about the practice of medicine, what happens is that some firm will run clinical trials on a device or a drug, and then they'll come out with a conclusion. If you use this product in this way on these patients, then you'll expect this result based on these statistics. And if we didn't do that, what would happen is that like a physician would be here and be like, okay, I don't know what to use this or how to use this or anything like that. And they'd just be guessing, which is what happened in medicine in the 1800s. And then when we look at the practice of marketing, we're pretty much practicing marketing like they practiced medicine in the 1800s based on anecdotes and individual feedback. Like, is there a way in the future that you could standardize measurement? You could standardize experimentation. You could tell marketers, if you do things in this way, then you will get this result because we just did this experiment with 50 companies at once using standardized methods. So changing marketing into a much more of a science than right now, which I think a lot of people feel like it's a science, but it's a science with a sample size of one. So you get anecdotes and things like that. And some people consider pipeline when they are 30% win rates. Some people consider pipeline when their SDR booked a meeting and hasn't even talked to them yet. And so you just get all of these really confusing anecdotes that people use to decide how to practice marketing. So in the future, I feel like there'll be a firm and it will be my firm that is advancing the science of how to generate demand. I love that. It sounds like, are you familiar with who Andrew Wilkinson is? I haven't heard of him before, but I'd love to know. Definitely check out his stuff. So Andrew Wilkinson, he we've had him on the pod before, and he built a web design firm called Meta Labs a long time ago. It was just kicking out of term profit. And he just decided to take the profits and just go buy other internet businesses. And it's, it's largely a holding company type of model. And then he's even raised more money. He's raised money to kind of go invest in other stuff. Yeah. But like, I think... You know, the way he broke this down was that agencies are great launchpad businesses, right? They're great foundational businesses. They kick out cash flow and you can kind of do whatever you want afterwards. In this case, you're building something that's never been done before, right? So I think it's great. And you kind of have like a funding mechanism every single year for yourself to build mm-hmm. this stuff too. But I would also love to invest if you're going to open it up a little bit. So let me don't forget about me. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely keep that in mind. Yep. Yeah. A couple other notes. I'm not sure if this is important or not, but I'd love to share it. Like we think differently about marketing, but we also think differently about funding the company. So like, instead of going the VC route, we've been funding the company through like low interest rate debt, which has actually been really great. And if you're a founder or an entrepreneur and you've gotten a business in a recurring revenue model to more than $5 million, I would like 
tell you to significantly consider it from a cash flow perspective because it costs way less than selling equity and you remain in control of your business. So it's been a huge learning for me, right? As a young little toddler or whatever, throughout my whole life as Chris Walker, you're basically taught that debt is bad. But when you're running a business and using debt to produce cash flow and grow a business at a greater rate than the interest rate, it actually is one of the most logical and smart things to do. You're using someone else's money to fund the growth of your business at a greater rate than you're paying in interest. And so would love some people that are listening to this podcast to know about that because it was a huge unlock for me. And if I had known about it earlier, I probably would have acted on it earlier. And it's been a huge driver for me and my company. I love that. So where are you pulling this debt from? Are these like SBA loans or where are you pulling these low interest rate loans? Yeah. So we initially, like a year ago, had used this company called Pipe. And there's other ones out there, like one called CapChase that takes recurring revenue, integrates with like your Stripe instance or things like that. And it's it's essentially accounts receivable financing. So if you have 12 month agreements, they'll basically front you the cash for the entire 12 months. And then you end up paying them back like 110, 115% of the total amount, but you get the cash up front. So I wouldn't necessarily consider that low interest rate, but like it's cheaper than a, like it's the only debt that you can get at that level of traditional banks, not going to give you debt there. Bank of America wouldn't even give us a credit line for 200 grand. And we were like a $10 million company at that point, which is ridiculous. And now we use, I'm not exactly sure what the form of debt is called, but we've used a company called Tamaya Capital. They're based based in Canada and have been a great partner for us. We raised $5 million total for them and we'll announce that next month. Great. Congrats on that. Yeah. I'm familiar with all the, the platforms that you talked about too. And you know, it's, I've talked to a handful of other founders too. Once your cash flows get really good, then you're just able to pull a ton from the banks and they'll give you like, you know, 1% or so. So I think it just takes time with these people, but that's great. That's helpful feedback because again, I agree with you. Like my Asian parents have taught me that that is bad. I think any parents really, that yeah, is bad, exactly. right? but there is good debt. So that's helpful. Totally. And by the way, so you guys are, I brushed past this point in the beginning, but I think what's really impressive too, is that you bootstrap this thing. When did you start at 2019? April, 2019. 2019. Okay. How many people are you at now? Cause you've grown pretty quickly. We're about 125 people right now. 125. So I think this just goes to show like, look, you can bootstrap something amazing. You don't need to raise a ton of money. You can do things on your own terms and then you can go build whatever the hell you want to build later on your own terms. So I think that's impressive, which is why we probably have to do another episode in a year or two. So quick rapid fire questions for you. And this is totally switching gears. Now a favorite business book. It's not really a business book, but it's my favorite book. And it's more of... Maybe it's a business book. It's called Mastery by Robert Greene. I think Robert Greene wrote 48 Laws of Power. I actually think that Mastery is his best book, but 48 Laws of Power is the most well-known. And it basically talks through the sequential steps of achieving mastery. And when you read it, you can literally feel like I'm at this step. And when you read the things before, you're like, I remember when I did those things, right? Like I felt like a little lost and I was over here. I wasn't sure where I was going, but it all adds up to where I'm actually going to do. So for people that are really trying to truly master a craft, which I haven't yet, if I'm like being totally transparent, I'm on my way. If you're trying to really master a craft, I think that that book is so powerful. Love it. You just reminded me, I have it sitting. Yep. I have it sitting right there. So I'll need to <laughs> thank you for that. And a favorite business tool. Whoa. You know, I don't really have a favorite business tool. I think that like some things that I've gotten value out of was like probably my cell phone. 
If you consider that a business tool, maybe you're looking for All right, staff. Give, give, me, give me a personal one, like something you do for health too. I've... <laughs> so like just a hack for me, and probably a lot of people listening to this podcast probably do this, but like I, about two months into starting my business, I transitioned from working out at like six in the evening to working out somewhere between five and six in the morning and has been an entire life changer for me in terms of productivity, how I feel every day the ability to take on very stressful situations and a lot of other things. So that was a little hack, not really a business tool, but something that has worked for me. Love it. Chris, is there anything else you feel like I should have asked you, but I didn't? You know, I do these things so often that I never wish that I get asked anything anymore. (laughs) Amazing. All right, man. Well, obviously you have a lot of stuff going on. So Chris, what is the best way for people to find you online? Awesome. Yeah. So the best place to get me probably is on LinkedIn. You can search at Chris Walker and follow me there. Feel free to connect as well. And also feel free to check out the State of Demand Gen podcast available on Apple and Spotify. It's a great podcast, everyone. So Chris, thanks so much for doing this. Eric. Yeah. Thanks. Can't wait to come down to Miami and meet you in person someday. Let me know. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.